see trees of green, red roses too. I see them blue for me and you. Welcome to Rising with the Tide. I'm Skander, joined always by my wonderful co-host Jamie. And Hello. today we're going back to our roots as uh, Lancaster students, which for me and Jamie were uh, actually not that long ago. I mean, for you, Jamie, when was it? Uh, two years ago. No, two years. Two and one and a bit. <laughs> one and a bit. Okay. And for me, it's just been six months since I've graduated. So uh, this is like a little bit of a trip down memory lane, but but very uh, short memory lane. Um, so today we're <laughs> we're joined by uh, Rebecca Willis, who's a professor in practice at Lancaster University. Uh, we're super excited to have her because we haven't had anyone from Lancs in quite a long time. I think the last one we had was Keith Bevan and then also Duncan McLaren. Um, I think those two were, were the last ones on our show. So it's always a pleasure to, to have you. Uh, Becky, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thank you. So you, in your Lancaster profile, you just summarize your work as environment, climate, and energy politics and policy, um, but also looking at the relationship between citizen and state in climate governance. Can you maybe explain what drove you to study this and kind of what inspired you to, to start up a, a career in researching these kind of topics? I can tell you the exact moment. Oh, so, <laughs> okay, yeah, that helps. It was, it was um, oh, okay, like more than 25 years ago when I was an undergraduate, I'm showing my age now. I was an undergraduate um, and in my, uh, I think second year, I had to answer an essay question, which was, um, why is uh, solving the climate solving climate change more difficult than ozone depletion? That was the question. And hmm. uh, so I, I basically I've spent the last twenty five years answering that essay question, <laughs> um, and my answer is something about just the the nature of what we need to do on climate in terms of. Uh, greenhouse gas reduction is a you know genuinely systemic issue I think it's the most tricky issue for politics and you know at the time that I was studying that the uh, the um, issue with the ozone layer had been sort of you know discovered um, there had been a relatively swift process to find what the problem was um, what the alternatives were to ozone depletion ozone depleting chemicals and to um, you know essentially to, to find the solution now I mean it wasn't that simple mm -hmm. right there was still like plenty <laughs> of companies shouting about this that, 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 that they shouldn't be regulated and so on but basically there was a problem we found an answer and um, you know I remember thinking at the time just how sort of complex climate was because it touches on every aspect of our lives and, and, and every way that you do politics and so you know that was really when I started to get interested in environmental issues and as I say I've been answering that question ever since. <laughs> yeah I, uh, I have to say I really appreciate uh, a lot of your work I, I've read I've read some of it I can't say I've read all of it um, especially your book which uh, I'm so 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 angry because it arrived home uh, just too late before I moved so now I have to wait until I get I have to go back home to get it um, but apart from that I actually uh, I think I in some ways based my uh, my grad application for the University of Tokyo for a master's program actually on on a couple of uh, things that you wrote um, because I, I applied with a master's project to look at um, potentially the comparing the English and the French uh, climate assemblies and uh, so your work is, uh, I think, I thought was really good on, on that. And 
we have so many questions about the citizen climate assembly from the uk um the kind of specifics and your experience as a lead expert on on that and also i think just more in general your research around uh democracy and, and this kind of i guess this answer that you seem to have throughout your work of of uh, more and slightly different democracy rather than less or rather than um uh, what a lot of other people are proposing. Could we maybe go over the kind of basics for listeners who might not even have heard of the climate assembly that happened in the UK? I'm thinking about, you know, the, the specifics of who participated, maybe what a citizen assembly is and in, in just general, and then who participated, what the goals were. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so a, a citizen's assembly, you can think of it like they're sometimes called mini publics because the idea is that you gather a group of citizens together who in some senses represent a wider group. So in this case, we wanted to get 108 people who were representative of the United Kingdom as a whole. So they were, uh, they, we sent out 30,000 letters and people responded if they wanted to take part. And out of that, we chose 108 people who were representative of the country as a whole, as a group in terms of age, gender, ethnicity, um, whether or not they had a disability, whereabouts in the country they lived, so rural or urban, and made sure they were geographically spread, and um, socioeconomic background, and also really crucially attitude to climate change, so whether or not, to what extent, if at all, they were concerned about climate change, and we used polling data to make sure that that represented the UK as a whole. Mm -hmm. and, and your role within that was being an expert lead to help those people? Yeah, so I, as expert lead, I, I mean, I, I was in there from the beginning. I, I, I made the case to Parliament and to others for why we should have an assembly, right. and then helped to design it. And then when we were actually there, um, I worked with there was me and three other expert leads, um, two other academics, and also Chris Stark, who heads up the Committee on Climate Change. And it was our job to structure the discussion, work out a way to have a, a meaningful conversation with 108 people about climate change um, and also um, to um, suggest what information they should have and who they should who they should hear from in terms of expert witnesses or speakers it wasn't just the four of us there was quite a big sort of um, there was an, an advisory group and an academic panel as well so that there was quite a few checks and balances because one of the most important things is to make sure that you actually um, you have a sort of a very credible process and that you you make that as as as, as fair and objective as you can um, so that you are allowing those 108 people to have a really good uh, discussion about how the UK tackles, um, tackles climate change. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's fantastic. I, I mean, I feel like this is something that is quite recent as a phenomenon, um, citizen assemblies. But I'm, I'm guessing maybe there's a little bit of history to them that the general public is unaware of. Did this sort of thing happen only recently or is it something that has a, a long tradition? Well, the ancient Greeks started it. Um... <laughs> there was quite a bit of a gap. <laughs> I mean, that's, you know, the, the original conception of democracy is that citizens, you know, not women or slaves, obviously, um, but proper citizens um, should, you know, should, should, should meet together um, and, and discuss and then, you know, come to conclusions about, about how to run their, their city. So, you know, that's, that's 
direct democracy um and 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 that's the that's the roots of it um i I think something like a the climate assembly can be seen as a manifestation of what you might call um deliberative democracy and that's an approach to democratic thinking which um which places an emphasis on um citizens coming together um having information available having that sort of reasoned debate so it's a contrast to what you might call um well what schumpeter called competitive elitism which is where elections are all about who can win an election and gain power and the role of citizens is seen as quite a private one of voting um so that's quite a minimalist conception of democracy and deliberative democracy is you know much more much a much broader conception of democracy where you're worried about the conditions under which um, citizens come to their conclusions and you want to make those um, those conditions for deliberation and reaching conclusions as 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 good and as fair as you possibly can um, so that you get uh, an an outcome which genuinely reflects the um, which generally reflects the considered views of the citizens. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's you know that's quite idealistic, but what you can do with a citizens, I mean, I you know, in an ideal world, the the entire democratic system would function that way. You know, we would all have access to really good information. We would all be talking to each other all the time. Politicians would listen to us. There would be ways of us feeding our views in. There wouldn't be you know undue influence by uh, big companies with lots of money and so on and so forth. You know, mm-hmm. media ownership would be sorted out. Whatever you can put your <laughs> you can put your requirements on it. But in an ideal world, we would uh, you know the the, the 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 democratic system would be a lot more deliberative. Um, in the absence so far of that ideal world, what you can do is create these sort of almost protected spaces to mimic that those democratic ideals, if you like, and use those to try and make progress on questions that really need to uh, that, that really need to be addressed because there is some kind of impasse. So you know, obviously, on climate change because we know what we need to do and we can't get you know we we we're, there's there's no government in the world that's doing enough at the moment but they've also been used on you know especially long-term issues like pensions or um social care things which tend to be more long-term which are kind of quite quite knotty issues um citizens assemblies and the sort of deliberative process are really good at unpacking and and being able to consider those those tricksy complex issues yeah i i wonder if you've had some ideas about how we can sort of foster such a culture of political participation or or at least maybe entice a, a greater number to participate in citizens assemblies well i mean what the what the theorists will tell you is that you need to do all you can to make the democratic system a deliberative democratic system so you know all those things I mentioned earlier about looking at you know the role of power and vested interests and you know how people access information and so on and so forth but you know I'm I'm not a proper academic I was I've only just come back to academia after 20 years doing grubby work with government so I tend to look at it from a much more practical perspective and and I think that um, we the main thing is that we need to be including citizens views and lived experience wherever we can in climate 
strategy. And a citizens' assembly is one way to do that. I think, and this happened more in France than it did here, that France had a citizens' assembly and, and they managed to um, get a much better sort of public debate around that. There was more media interest. There was, you know, it was more likely Emmanuel Macron that, went yeah. to, to visit as well. Yeah, yeah. It's more likely that you could stop uh, a, a, a French citizen in the street and say, did you know about the citizens' assembly? That hasn't happened so much here, but you can use those big events to foster a wider debate. You can also, and this is what my work looks at now, you can also look at how you incorporate um, citizen views and experience into the sort of uh, the into the policy making process, because it, climate policy has been very expert driven. So, you know, to take just one um, challenge, the need to decarbonize transport, you know, there's there's people are experts in their own lives right they know they know what what uh they know when they need to travel and why and um they they know um you know why they like driving if they like driving they they know that uh you know maybe they would cycle if x y or z were different and what what we what you have at the moment is quite a patchwork of sort of understanding of people's views but what you don't have is and you know obviously there's plenty of surveys and research about you know what people think about different kinds of transport but what you don't have is that conversation between citizens and the state or you know government or parliament about okay we need to decarbonize transport if you um government were to make it possible you know make it safer to cycle then i as a citizen would be you know really yeah. happy to jump on my bike and for my kids to jump on bikes that ain't going to happen at the moment because you know i don't want my child dicing with death on this road but if this were different yeah. then i could do that and it's like you can actually discuss that sort of social contract so i think you can build these conversations much more into the way that we do climate strategy um because we shouldn't be assuming you know like i mean the cycling things are classic why you know why is the uk government sort of assuming low levels of cycling when we know from experience in you know the netherlands and denmark and elsewhere that you can make it a norm yeah yeah yeah, yeah we we'd spoken to danny harris who's um head of the transportation alternatives in new york and he was telling us that um it's always this kind of dance between government and people where the people say if there were more cycle lanes we would cycle uh, protected cycle lanes as well and the government saying yeah but if there are more people that cycled we would put protected protected cycle lanes um i i just want to go back to quickly something you said you said that people know best or i'm paraphrasing but the people know best about their own um habits or abilities or something about tra transport for example right um I, I read recently this book called um, Économie 2, uh, a French book. I can't exactly remember who the author was. Um, and the author is basically someone who has a purely net zero company that like over, I think, 20 years, they've managed to reduce their, their, um, their carbon footprint to basically zero. And now they help other companies do the same. And he was saying that whenever he goes to other companies to help them, um, the employees much much more than times not they don't realize that for example they live within a kilometer or less of uh, their co-workers so there's like carpooling available or a lot of the time they 
way way overestimate um how long it would take for them to take public transport or like a mix uh transport to get to work um i mean there were instances of people saying oh it would take me two hours if i left uh if i didn't have a car to get to work and then they did the trip and it took them less than 30 minutes um so like obviously these are these aren't you know um studies or, or peer-reviewed or, or peer-reviewed um statistics but are are you are you sure that people really know what what they're doing in terms of transport are they not sometimes overestimating how difficult some some of it is okay well i think the issue here is what uh, you know who who are we are we consumers or are we citizens and mm -hmm. the the language that government tends to use is that of consumer so you know you are a consumer of transport so you know in terms of those employees they um you know when you're thinking in consumer terms you're thinking you know what's best for me right now what's cheapest most efficient whatever and that's a very different conversation to um going to someone as a citizen or as part of a collective in terms of you know everyone who works at a company or something like that and saying to them okay this is the goal that we need so we need to decarbonize transport by x date um you know let's hear from some and the learning phase is really important so let's you know let's hear from experts about how that can be done what would you you know what would you support and what would you find difficult so you know that kind of two-way debate so i'm not saying that people you know automatically have the right answers and, and, mm. and all you have to do is say what people do otherwise you know we'd be there with opinion polling wouldn't we we'd just do whatever the opinion yeah, polls told us and that you know that, that, that's not gonna work well um so i'm not saying that at all what i am saying is that if you give people the the time and the space and the the respect to um to help you solve a problem they will help you solve it and you see that time and time again you see that mm. um you know you give them um you 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 give them the opportunity to take part in decision making and they come up with really sensible decisions that's very different from saying because i had this conversation the other day with um you know someone who 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 worked in uh in um what used to work for a mobile phone company and he said well look no one had a clue about you know how texts would take off or you know group chat or all this stuff you know that's just <laughs> happened if, yeah. if you'd said 10 years ago do you want to be you know looking at your phone all the time having all these messages from people that you vaguely know in a group chat they'd probably say that sounds really terrible yeah. um, it still or, sounds terrible today. Or, what's okay? <laughs> or you know or what's the point of that i mean texts weren't you know it was not foreseen how texts would work yeah. Um, and that's true. So we're probably not very good at predicting how we will use technology, for example, that we don't mm -hmm. know about. Yeah. So, um, you know, I would say, you know, like on the text messages or how we use tech or whatever. I mean, you know, don't use a citizens assembly or, you know, that kind of deliberation to decide how to use text messages, but absolutely do use it to talk about how to regulate um, Facebook and Google and you know general online activities because that is about you know those are those are collective concerns they are um, you know issues for governance and getting people involved in those decisions is really crucial I think. Um, earlier you suggested that the French government sort of <clears throat> had a reasonable level of engagement with their citizens assemblies and I, I believe it actually funds some of them as well. Um, 
from your experience, how how responsive would you say the UK government is to citizens' assemblies in this country and, and perhaps to the climate assembly? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say with this government. They've been... So I should say that the, the difference between the UK and France is that in France it was a direct initiative of the president, um, President Macron. And... Um, and, and, and he kept that link with it. He, you know, he visited the convention as it was happening. He, um, you know, he responded to the citizens. He responded to the, when they, when they um, released their results and so on. Um, in the UK, our climate assembly was set up by parliament, by six select committees within parliament. And so that isn't the government. Um, there were some MPs from the governing party who were part of that, but it isn't government policy, if you like. And I mean, that might seem like a, an, a, 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 a geeky distinction, um, but there wasn't any, we didn't have any commitment from the government that they would use the findings in any way as they went in. So, I mean, you know, the, we've, we've had encouraging noises from ministers um, mm. And we've had a huge uptake in terms of government uh, civil servants, actually. I mean, I think at last count, we've spoken to, we, we've been on, you know, Zoom calls with, I think, 400 civil servants, something yeah. like that, you know, presenting wow. the findings. So um, a lot of interest. Um, so far, we haven't had, you know, Boris Johnson standing up and saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to do yeah. all of that. <laughs> um, but I, I, I think it, you know, I, it's such a useful body of evidence. I can't see why they wouldn't use it, to be honest. Mm. But we haven't had that same direct link into government that there was in France. Can we can we maybe get um, just a, a general overview of what the recommendations that people came up with uh, were from from your climate uh, assembly? Yeah, sure. Well, um, I mean, it would the actual. Um, the actual recommendations are very detailed because that's yeah, what yeah. the, the report's quite what, big. Yeah, uh, this, this, uh, if you're listening on a podcast, I'm now holding up a huge, great, uh, old fashioned Good telephone God. directory style <laughs> um, size of report. It's, it's, wow. it's huge. Um, because the, the, the parliamentary committees did want that level of detail. But what I think is really interesting. Um, in terms of this discussion is to look at the principles that the citizens came up with and these yeah. are principles that they were asked to use to guide their decisions so some of the things they talked about were the need for sort of national level education and engagement about climate so that goes back to what i was saying about sort of having this conversation not just amongst the 108 citizens but together as a society um, they were very keen on um, government leadership and consistency, and they wanted that to be cross-party, actually. They wanted opposition and government to work together on climate. Um, there was also uh, quite a lot of interest in local level solutions. So um, that was a sort of running theme through the report, the idea that local areas sort of understood what would work in that locality and that, that that's the level that's meaningful to citizens. So that was another thread that ran through it. And then we had very detailed recommendations across, it was divided into um, how we travel, what we buy and what we eat, um, how we use energy in the home, and then some other categories. So very sort of from a citizen point of view. And I mean, the, the recommendations vary. Some of them are quite eye-catching. So, you know, bans on advertising for um, the most polluting cars and uh, banning cars from city centres, frequent flyer levies. 
Um, that would be that would be a dream. Banning cars <laughs> from city centers. Um, in some areas, um, citizens were more cautious than, for example, some of the green groups would like. So they backed sort of a limited, uh, limited um, expansion in. Um, uh, aviation so they didn't back the kind of 70 percent increase that the uh, airline companies want but they mm -hmm. neither did they want to reduce the amount of flying that goes on um they were um they were quite cautious about um meat and dairy consumption so mm -hmm. it did it did vary yeah. um but what it adds up to is a pretty comprehensive mandate for a set of policies which would get us to the net zero by 2050 goal were there so, any like really specific stuff like hs2 or heathrow uh, expansion that sort of thing um so there weren't that they didn't vote on those um so no um you'd you'd have to look i mean they would have come up in the discussion mm -hmm. and there were some general points made particularly when we talked to them about covid recovery because we uh so covid hit three quarters of the way through our process we were about to finish in the middle yeah. of march when covid mm. hit so the last part of it we did online and they were very keen to talk about the links between um covid19 recovery and climate and they were very very keen to make sure those two things were aligned and particularly that they didn't want to see no strings bailouts um, for um, airlines, for example. So they, they saw that COVID-19 is an opportunity to um, put investment that we need anyway for our economy to recover towards the, the net zero target. Um, just before we continue, uh, we usually stop at halfway to, uh, to do, <laughs> yeah, Jamie's already smiling. He knows what's coming, uh, to do a little game. Um, we're still trying to figure out a name for this game. Uh, we've had a few suggestions online from our listeners, but uh, none of them have really been eye-catching. I thought of Noah's Bark the other day. I think I like that. I think that's quite good. If no one else likes it, fine. Jamie, when I asked Jamie about it, he just looked at me and stared in silence. So for now, um, I think we're just going to keep it untitled. So Rebecca, uh, Becky, you will be representing the guest team. Okay. Um, and Jamie, will, as always, will be representing the host team until... Okay. I don't know, we've never switched places. Maybe we should one, di one time. Uh, last time that we did this with Ben Burgess, uh, the uh, host of uh, Given an Argument, I messed up and I forgot to rename the file. So, so he managed to guess the animal before, uh, before we actually got into the game. But Becky, basically how the game works is it's a quite simple game, but we've had fun with it in the past. I hope you will too. Uh, I've prepared a really bizarre animal noise for you two and the game is just to guess it but it's always a little bit more complex than than it seems um you last time the guest team guessed first so this time jamie will start and then you and if you don't get it i'll give you a hint and you get another try etc etc and hopefully you two could put me out of my misery of being a game host um, <laughs> and this so, is the tiebreaker yes three, three. Oh, okay no pressure that's true yeah <laughs> I've been whittled down from a hundred percent success rate to fifty. <laughs> this is this is your chance to 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 push the the guest team over the line. 
Um, so please have a listen. <laughs> Don't be alarmed. It is supposed to be a little bit weird. It is, it is a real animal. Yes, it is a real animal. And it's not a human. Both our contestants seem perplexed. Go on then, Jamie. Okay. Well, the issue is, is that I there seems to be three different sounds going on there. Yeah, but they're all from one. All animal. of them. So there's all like a squeaky sound. There's like a a lower, like howling sound. It's the same animal. It's the same animal. Yeah. Is it more than one animal? Or is no, it just... it, I think it's more than one animal. Yeah, it's from a, it's from the Museum of Berlin's uh, database. So I think they basically have an enclosure uh, with this animal, and so there's one it's squeaking multiple. and one howling at the same time. I think so. I can't be completely honest with that, but yeah, I think it is. Jamie's um... fighting for his right to stay on. <laughs> um... No pressure, Jamie. Um, if you get it wrong, you'll okay. well, forever uh, be branded as a, a loser. This might be a bit too general, but I'm, I'll just say monkey. No, 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 no. no. Okay. Not a monkey. Becky? Well, I was thinking along monkeyish lines, but um, I'm going to say this just because I love them. Maybe lemurs. Oh, no, no, no. Good, good, good guesses both. Um, unfortunately, no. So first hint they are uh, currently not threatened i usually try and give a, a little bit of a hint around the uh, conservation status they're not threatened and they're found in china indonesia uh india laos malaysia myanmar nepal thailand and vietnam so this gives you a little bit of a maybe a, a geographical area at least um Is it is it some sort of bat? Oh yes, it's a bat. It's, it's a, bat. a bat. It's a bat. Oh! Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm back on the edge. Jamie's managed to come back from the edge. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It is a, a least horseshoe bat. It's called. Oh. I wasn't going to make you guys guess the exact type of bat because it's just way too difficult. Um, but if you can hear, if you listen to it again, I think you'll hear. It's basically it's uh, echolocation like. When it's when it's looking for things and it's it's a lot of different noises that it makes when it does that, um, according to at least the Museum of Berlin of Natural Sciences. Um, well, so, yeah. I missed out there because I actually share an office with a bat specialist. Oh, but even so, even <laughs> well, so, I, I didn't does, get it. I hope they don't listen to this. Because... <laughs> you, should have, you should have recognized it from their ringtone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. No. She does. She does the. I think mainly UK bats. Yeah. right okay damn well um hopefully it's not like uh there's one person that we were going to have on the podcast and we might still who's a shark specialist and everything that they do is shark like shark themed their their phones their profile pictures and everything and even the song that we asked for they gave us um a baby <laughs> shark which i had to i had to put my veto power on i was like no no there's no way i'm yeah, having deleted baby the episode shark. after that <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, sorry, Becky. Um, thanks for playing anyways, but uh, it seems like Jamie got like really, 
An early victory. You saved me, Becky. (laughs) (laughs) I can't. You know, I can't come on the show if I go below fifty percent. You have to to get a more successful co-host if that happens. um so so back into the uh the discussion around citizen assemblies and such um i i really really wonder um what you think are some of the dangers that citizen assemblies should avoid and and maybe maybe some that you know some things as well that you wish yours had done differently i'm not if if any um would you have any recommendations for future ones it's i I realize it's three questions in one sorry about that yeah i mean I think there's a, I mean, there's definitely a danger of not doing them properly. And because they've, I mean, they, they, they've become, there's, there's been so much focus on them. They've become quite popular. And um, there's no sort of trademark of a citizen's assembly or a citizen's jury or, you know, that people try and develop quality standards, but there's there's no, uh, you know, anyone can say, oh, look, this is my citizen's assembly. Even, so one of the most, just to give you an example, one of the most crucial things is that you have a, a sample that's representative of the group of people that, you know, that, that you're claiming for. So, so in our case, it was a representative sample of the UK population. Um, so they're not self-selecting. Some people mm-hmm. say, oh, come to the citizens' assembly and they'll put a poster up saying it's, you know, 7.30 at night in this town hall or whatever, and that is not a citizens' assembly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. You know, maybe a useful meeting. Um, so sort of forum a, then. It's a forum, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there are certain, you know, there are certain sort of criteria that you need to meet. It needs to be a representative sample. They need to have enough time to consider the issue under question. They need to hear from experts. They need to spend time with each other and it needs to be independently facilitated. So those are some of the sort of quality standards that you would expect. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, moving away from the practicalities, I think the biggest dilemma actually of these processes and particularly for climate is how specific or general you are about the recommendations so you know do you um so so the the uk climate assembly because it was started by because it was commissioned by parliament wanted really specific policy recommendations um, as well as the general principles and so on and and it got those and i think that's good so you know it, it sort of did what it achieved I mean, I also think that there's room for citizen deliberation about, you know, the really big question about, you know, can our economic and political structures handle climate change? And if not, what do we need instead? You know, I mean, even um, is capitalism the answer? Um, You know, or do we need to reform capitalism? Those really huge questions. Now, you know, I mean, I'm not coming down on either side of that argument, but I'm just saying it's perfectly... Uh, legitimate to ask citizens to debate those really big issues and um, the danger is that if you so so if you do that if you go really macro like that you'll get a really interesting discussion but then it's quite hard for the to know what the for the parliamentary committees to know what to do with that you know we're working on we're we're you know we're the um transport committee and we want to know what what citizens think about our inquiry on you know pedestrianization of town centers and they've told us that we need a reform of global financial markets well or capitalism that's not really helpful to us um but that debate needs happen needs to happen right but then if you go to the other extreme and you just you know you you force you you frame it in such a way that the decision that the scope is quite limited 
admitted, um, then you you don't actually give citizens a chance to say, oh, excuse me, why are you asking me about these petty little things when yeah. actually it's a big question. So I think that is, there's no, I don't have an answer as to which of those you should do, but that's definitely a kind of choice that has to be made. And it's interesting seeing, um, so Scotland is now doing a citizens assembly on, on climate and they have gone a bit wider actually, they are asking more systemic issues. And that's partly um, because of having this debate and I had this debate with them and you know, I think um, that some uh, sort of climate activists in Scotland also had that debate and so they have pushed it a bit wider. And I think, I think that's, um, you know, it'd be really interesting to see um, how citizens deal with debate at that level. If we um, if we kind of consider the UK to be a more a uh, more minimal end of uh, of um, sort of in integration into the actual uh, government of a citizens assembly, and maybe uh, France a bit further along the line with its government support, what is the most institutionalized citizens assembly you know of? Um, you know. Uh, I, I mean, poss possibly Switzerland is one example of, um, and I guess it sort of turns into real direct democracy at that point. Um, so what, what is the, the, the most institutionalized one you know of? And do you think that's something we should uh, necessarily follow or like aim towards with our own? Well, I think, I think maybe what you're getting at is, should the results of these processes be binding or advisory? Yeah. Um, and my, so I think that you can use not just citizens assemblies, but there are other processes like participatory budgeting, where you, 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 you allocate a budget to a group of citizens to spend. Um, there's obviously referenda, which is, you know, how, how Switzerland does things, not necessarily one for the UK, <laughs> um, given our <laughs> history of referendums. Oh, so if you ask, I, th I think it's it's fine to ask citizens to answer a question, a specific question and make the results binding. But uh, I think it's problematic with an issue like climate, because, you know, at the end of the day, you're trying to make the democratic system work better, not replace it. And um, that doesn't mean that people can't make specific decisions themselves sort of on behalf of politicians but the fact is the buck has to stop somewhere right and I you know I'm a, I'm a firm believer in democracy I think the buck should stop with elected politicians who we get to kick out of office if we don't like them um, so that that uh, you know elected politicians um, need to be the sort of final port of call and certainly some you know something that MPs have said to to me about citizens assemblies is they're worried that it will sort of replace their role and you know what what I would always say in response to that is that it's about it's not at all about replacing representative democracy it's about making representative democracy work much better and about giving those politicians um, much better sort of fine-grained access to the um, views and the values of the people that they represent so that, um, you know, because a vote is a really, really blunt instrument when it comes to saying what kind of society you want to live in, right? I mean, just sticking mm. a piece of paper in a box yeah, once yeah, in every yeah. five years, it just doesn't cut it, especially in our system because of the uh, 
issues around our first past the post system in the UK. So, you know, so these kinds of processes, I don't think they should be binding. I think they should be advisory and, you know, elected representatives should have the final say. But I would hope that politicians can, um, you know, can sort of loosen up a bit and agree at least to um, to incorporate these sorts of deliberative processes and these this form of dialogue with citizens as you know one of the things that helps them get to their decision. What if, and I understand this is straying somewhat into kind of ideal territory, we had we had sort of sort of a rigorous education system, so your average citizen was actually very politically literate and very politically engaged. In that situation, would it would it not be better to replace representative democracy with a more direct form um, to, you know, if, if the citizens re were sort of qualified in the matter of masses of politics? Well, I mean, so that's a bit more like the Swiss system, isn't it? So, you know, every mm. time, I mean, I, I just, I just don't see it. Like every time there's a significant decision to be made, 70 million people, or known might take away children um <laughs> tens of millions let's say of, of people um actually there is there are there's an academic called david runciman who who, who suggested that the uh, voting age should be lowered to six and he actually gives <laughs> quite good seriously he actually gives really? some oh. some very interesting uh, wow. reasons for that um mm. anyway leaving that aside i i just don't think that you can run a a, a complex state um, by, um, you know, by allowing a role for each and every um, adult, let alone child. But I think you could move a lot more in that direction. So one example is, and you know, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath for this, but I would much prefer to see a, uh, a second chamber. So like the House of Lords being replaced with a chamber that was decided by sortition. So essentially by lottery. And you would, um, you know, if you got your, you know, if the envelope came through your postbox, um, your letterbox, you would then take up your um, your position in the second chamber for, you know, say 10 years, whatever that might be. And you would have the salary and the staff and, you know, it would be like a sort of permanent citizens assembly hmm. um, over a decent time span. Now, that's quite possible. Um, but I mean, the other thing is that you don't, it doesn't need 70 million. Right. It doesn't need all of us to be made. We've all got lives to live. Right. I'd, I'd quite like to delegate some of this governance stuff yeah. and just like, you know, get on with my life. So the I think the essential thing is how do you um, make sure that um, citizens who aren't involved in these processes uh, trust and have confidence in the processes that do involve citizens? And there's quite good. Uh, there's been a few studies which show that. Um, citizens do trust these processes because they trust people like them to make the decisions and in some cases they, they trust people like them more than they trust sort of experts and politicians working together so that um, you know you might um, you know if you're not sure what um, you know if, if you're not sure what you think about um, I don't know uh, a, a, the country's climate strategy um, if you're told that a bunch of people like you have sat in a room for four weekends and worked it out, you'd be like, okay, right. If they think that that's the way forward, I'm happy to go with that. 
Whereas if those same out if those same proposals were put forward saying this is what this group of experts and politicians thought, you might not get the same answer. Yeah, I, I have to say, I really love the, the way that uh, the climate assembly that you were part of worked with um, the idea of representation of the UK. I thought that was fantastic. Um, for those listening who don't maybe know, um, there was all of the assembly members seem to represent, like the, the assembly in itself seemed to represent quite well, in my opinion, the the UK as a country in terms of, uh, so there, there were things like um, criteria were age, um, male, female, other um, qualifications in terms of education, uh, ethnicity, etc. And, you know, it's it's quite clear when you look at the at the statistics that um, the assembly followed pretty like precisely what the actual numbers or at least percentages are. I thought that was really great. Um, so I just wanted to commend you guys on that, but also ask how your personal experience was dealing with people on a personal level at the climate assembly did you find that you had some some real personal issues in terms of uh, communicating the science that you were supposed to communicate did you i mean did you have personal um communications with the people in the assembly yeah i mean so i i was one of the presenters um, I did some very general stuff on how we can take action on climate change, what the role of government is, so on. And then I was a kind of roving question answerer. <laughs> um, I had a lot of discussions with citizens. And what did I think? I mean, the first thing I'd say is that is that um, people took their jobs so seriously. Um, you know, it was it was pretty tough to sit there for as long as they did, taking in a lot of information and also sitting around the table with people from, you know, a really wide range of backgrounds with a really wide range of views. And it's quite exhausting sort of having to, um, you know, we're so used to be surrounded by being surrounded. To, we're so used to being surrounded by people like us, aren't we, that, you know, actually um, really having that having those conversations with such a wide range of people who might have very different views from you it's a real challenge but people rose to it they really enjoyed it they take they took their job really seriously I mean I'm so pleased that we managed to do some of it in person because you could see them all getting together and talking over lunch and 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 and, and you know talking through what they thought about different options and so on so I was really impressed by their dedication and you know obviously I, I mean, it was my job to present a, as balanced a view as I could, so I couldn't sort of say my own preferences. And there were obviously people that, I, you know, I didn't agree with their views. They were, you know, there were, you could see, you could, you could tell people's sort of political positions quite often, and that's fine, that's the point of it. But you could see, you know, a lot of different views being expressed. Um, but that's, you know, that's what it's about. It's not sort of all sort of polite plain sailing it is proper debate and you really got that feeling mm -hmm. yeah I, I i remember um reading this uh assembly member mark's uh testimony saying i felt like i'd won the lottery when i got the letter i'd be daft not to do it it's amazing to get the chance to have a say and influence what may happen in the future um mark from newcastle seemed to have been in the army for 22 years um and so i don't know i i feel like it's it's i i feel quite happy to see the the people who were chosen see it as what it is mm. which is quite mm. a great opportunity to 
not just affect change, but also to take part in, in a, such a such a great project. Um, so, no, it's I think it's it's really what's the word? It's it's quite um, uh, what's the word? <laughs> Inspirational. I, was gonna mm. say. I think it's worth it is worth saying though that not everyone was that necessarily that enthusiastic, especially mm -hmm. going into it. So it's really important to I mean, it's, it's good practice and i think really important to pay people for their participation mm. in these oh, processes so were, were people paid people were paid yeah and they yeah, also okay. they had all their expenses covered and also any other access requirements so if they needed you know childcare costs covered or you know that was all oh. sorted for them and you will get some people so I, i'll never forget talking to someone i know who's absolutely brilliant on this he runs citizens juries and we were I asked him does he ever get people who just turn up for the money and he said yes and we want them <laughs> they are you know <laughs> oh, yeah. they are actually really brilliant people to have in the in the discussion because you know they're just like oh well I haven't got anything else to do I mean there was one one woman who was interviewed she um she took part in the Irish Citizens Assembly and it was actually the one about um changing the constitution around um the right to life and abortion and someone knocked on her door and said do you want to take part in the Citizens Assembly you get to spend a few weekends in a hotel in Dublin and her kids were really young at the time she was like a weekend in a hotel yeah count me yeah. in <laughs> and 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 so fantastic. you know those are the people who won't have pre set views who might not even have voted before but it's right. really essential to hear from them since citizen assemblies are so supposed to be representational of, of a of a country like the uk do you think that the next one can just be called something like lil britain <laughs> <laughs> no is that is that too much for that do you think that'll be no uh... i'm not going to give you an answer to that i mean i <laughs> i think what i can, i i think um I do think it's important to be quite playful about the way we do this. You know, I think, mm -hmm. um, I, I, th I think, I mean, if I have a sort of criticism of them, it's that, you know, it, it's all sort of very serious and, and formal. And, um, you know, I, I really like, especially with like citizens juries, which tend to be smaller, sort of 20 or 30 people, they can be much more, informal there was one um there was there was uh, a citizens jury that was run online actually and so they put a lot of thought into how to sort of create that um that uh sort of social sense of being in this together and the, the citizens themselves decided that they were going to have like a jam session so they actually all brought along their instruments and tried <laughs> no <way>. to, <laughs> yeah and and tried to uh, play a bit of music together on zoom which as as i'm sure you'll know is always a disaster but you know i think i think these are it's about you know these all these events are about sort of coming together socially and working on things together so i think it can, they can be and they should be mm. quite playful things mm -hmm. yeah i i was actually I, I just thought something quick that um i really wanted to ask was when you said that you were so as lead expert um one of the uh, expert sorry expert leads yes yeah yeah um you had to give uh, impartial and, and neutral information and such um i was wondering how much of how how in-depth did you manage to get because um, with this podcast, for example, Jamie and I, we have a, a very, you know, 
quick background let's say in in environmental uh, issue or whatever in politics as well like it's we've simply just done a bachelor and we're interested in it that's basically our background right and but through this podcast we've realized that um all of these topics are so so much more complex than we originally uh, thought they were that we ever thought really for example you know we got to learn about um how that like the renewables renewable energy and how uh there are very real um pollution pollution related you know negative sides to to renewables such as like solar panel e-waste in ghana or or the mining sector uh in the congo that employs uh like 25 percent of children there uh to, to mine our cobalt for 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 such things so so i guess but we only got to to learn about this by really going in depth on these topics. And I feel like if we didn't have enough time, we wouldn't have been able to ever really know about this. Do you think that your citizen assembly um, managed to learn enough to make these decisions? Yeah, I mean, you know, you could, you, uh, I don't know. I mean, you could spend four weekends talking about, um, you know how to manage the solar industry like you know mm. the, the, the the question you just said or you know how to look to look in depth at the environmental and social impacts of of um the switch to renewable energy you know you can you can go into as much depth as you want and um people will they, they, they'll be able to do that you know i've seen uh processes like this i've seen a citizens jury on nanotechnology where citizens came up with really sensible recognition recommendations on governing nanotechnology you know they're quite capable of having these discussions um but you know you just have to we could we we felt like we didn't you know it was too much of an ask to expect people to do more than four weekends there wasn't the budget for more than four weekends so you just work with what you've got don't you um and um you know in terms of my own role I mean I just had to be I'd you know I don't know everything about everything I mean I've worked on climate for a long time so I can give a general answer to most things but I, I just said what I didn't know um and and I also tried to express uncertainty when there was uncertainty so you know when I was I mean one of the things I was asked about all the time is um carbon uh storage underground and I had to say you know this is what this is what is proposed that you can store carbon underground that you know this is how it works and then I had to qualify it by saying you know there are these uncertainties about it you know it hasn't been tried commercially some people say that it might link leak and so on so you've got to you've, you've got to encapsulate the state of knowledge as best you can but it's it's an art not a science yeah yeah for sure um I guess we're we're nearing the end now uh we usually try and close off with a little book recommendation which uh for everyone listening you can find the books the list of the recommendations that we've had so far on our patreon uh that one's available for everyone obviously we're not gonna to make you pay for for a book recommendation list um becky is there any book off the top of your head that maybe loosely or directly connected to the topics we've talked about today that you'd want to recommend to anyone listening I'm going to have to think about it. What have I read recently? <laughs> Maybe the path to net zero climate assembly UK full report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole, the whole phone directory of it. Um, it can be one of your own books as well, by the way. Um, that's completely fine. The, 
Okay, well, I mean, obviously, there's my own book, which actually looks at this question of how you do democracy better for climate change. That's called Too Hot to Handle. Um, I think one of the books that's influenced me most is a book called Living in Denial by the sociologist Carrie Norgard, which looks at why we collectively ignore climate change, even when we know individually that it's, that it's uh, a problem. And that book really changed things for me. So I think that would be my top of my list. Great. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll add it to the list then. Um, I've just got it. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to check the title because it's, a book. Uh, I have it here. It's Living in Denial, Climate Change, Emotions in the Everyday yeah. Life. Yeah. Yeah. By Carrie uh, yeah, Norgard. That's K-A-R-I. And that's then right. That's the one. Yeah. Norgard with yeah. two A's. Yeah. Um, no, it, it looks uh, it looks like a really interesting it's a great book. book. I'll add it to my ever-growing list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I decided to, these are, this is around what I'm trying to read at the moment. And I still, I'm still struggling. I don't know how people do it. I, I just pick out more books than I need. And then yeah, no, I, I just get feeling. lost within them. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, uh, Becky Willis, thank you so much for, for coming you. on the show. It's been thank fantastic. Thank you, it's been and a great conversation. I think we're, we're really keen on, on following uh, what you do and also to see if there's any more uh, climate assemblies or related projects. Mm -hmm. Is there any more that you can kind of leak to us or, or point us towards? Well, there's a Scottish one that's happening at the moment. Um, there's one that I, I advised a little bit in Washington State, USA, top left, mm -hmm. oh, Seattle, really? you know, where Seattle is. Um, so that'll be really interesting now, given what's, you know, what's happening in the US. Um, there's lots in local areas. Um, it, it's you know it's it's really it, it's uh, it's really taking off, which is very exciting for me. Yeah, that's great. I don't I don't think many people will be against uh, an increase in democracy. Although maybe. No, some are. Some are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Becky. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Right. Hey, thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you. Bye bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Rising with the Tide. If you're craving more on Climate Assemblies and Rebecca Willis's masterful explanations, the Physical Attraction podcast is releasing their own interview of Rebecca Willis on February the 16th. Physical Attraction has been around for a while, showing us all how it's done through their impressively large catalogue of nearly 200 episodes. From their 25-part series on the history and future of nuclear fusion, to standalone interviews of scientists, historians and other fantastic people, Physical Attraction has shown real passion and dedication throughout the years. You can find their full interview with Rebecca Willis on almost any podcast platform. As for Rising with the Tide, make sure to visit www.linktr.ee forward slash Rising with the Tide to find all the links you need. Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, we have all the cool kids' socials. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Rising with the Tide, where for monthly donations, you can get a bunch of extra content, early access, and shoutouts. Speaking of, big thanks to Nadia, Shedia, Pablo, and Tommy for supporting the show and making sure we can keep this amazing project going. 